All right, so these past few months, we've been in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is, it's an intense book, and it's an amazing book. It is one of the most challenging books of the Bible. It's also one of the most hope-filled books of the Bible, because it's all about how Christ, who came first as the, the suffering Savior, he came uh, without any, any beauty or majesty, he came as a baby, he was a poor carpenter, he first came in that form to save us from our sin, the down on the cross, but his second coming, when he returns, he's going to come as the conquering king that he is. And so he's going to return on the white horse with the sword and the army, and he's going to vanquish sin. He's going to vanquish death, anxiety, depression, all the junk that we struggle with. When he comes back, it's all over. And so in the book of Revelation, um, it's written to John the Apostle. And so John is exiled on this island called Patmos, and there he's a prisoner, and while he's praying and worshiping, Jesus comes to him in a vision and gives him everything in the book of Revelation. So he specifically gives him seven letters. So we have a map here of Turkey. So John is on Patmos, that little island down there, and he has seven letters to deliver to these seven churches, and they're written in order. So They go from Ephesus to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. Sardis was last week. It's pretty intense, but good. And then Philadelphia is today. And then we're going to end next week in Laodicea. And so these are all letters that are written for the church's encouragement and a lot of correction. And so if if the infinite king of the universe took the time to write these letters to the church, then we need to pay attention to it because... Yes, he wrote it to specifically the church in Philadelphia, but thereby it is written to the church as a whole. And we are the body of Christ as Christians, as believers. We are his church. And so we need to pay attention to what he's saying. And so before we go any further, let's just get into the text and read it here. So Revelation 3, verse 7 through 13, it says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. And what he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, and yet you have obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they're Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones that I love. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon this whole world to test those who belong to this world. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So Jesus starts this letter by saying, this is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. So he begins this letter by laying out his character, who he is. So he starts by saying, look, I am, I am the holy one. 
So what, what does it mean to be holy? I'm going to throw that question out to you guys. Do you guys have any guesses? What does it mean that God is holy? Be set apart. Be set apart. Oh, such a good student. Looky there. It means to be set apart. And so, yes, we often think that um, being holy is um, about righteousness and moral perfection. And yes, that, that's a part of it. But what it's saying that God is holy is that God is set apart in his holiness, in, in, in his righteousness, in his moral perfection. He is set apart from all of creation. And so to give you an illustration of this, uh, throw me up my picture of sand. So you've all held sand before. You know what a grain of sand is, how, how tiny it is, how it, how it just gets stuck in all the cracks and crevices when you go to the beach and it rubs you raw. I hate sand. So that's sand. It's tiny. It's minuscule. Now throw me the next picture. That is Mount Everest. It is the largest mountain in the world. So Mount Everest compared to the grain of sand is, is like God's set-apartness compared to his creation. So you take the grain of sand and like you could put it on your little finger. How many grains of sand would it take to fill Mount Everest? billion, a trillion, that may not be a quadrillion, I don't know, a whole heck of a lot. It'll take an enormous amount of sand to fill Mount Everest because Mount Everest is set apart from a grain of sand. And so in the same way, God is infinitely set apart from his creation. He's infinitely above it. He's infinitely wiser. And everything about God is holy. It is set apart. His righteousness is holy. His love is holy. His judgment is holy. His wrath is holy. Everything about him is perfect. It's set apart. Just like Mount Everest. And, and even, even this picture right here between a grain of sand and Mount Everest doesn't do God justice. Because it's more like, like his creation is a grain of sand and he is like the sun, the size of the sun, the ferocity of the sun, or, or like the solar system or the, the universe. God is infinite, and his creation is finite, which means that even, even the demons, even Satan, hold no power over God because Satan is a created being, and God is the infinite, uncreated one. So Jesus begins this letter by saying that he is the Holy One. He's set apart. He's all-powerful. And then he says, and I am the true one. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying, look, every word that comes out of my mouth, every syllable that I utter is 100% truth. You don't have to worry about Jesus saying something with, with ulterior motives or, or something that's, that's devious and can't be trusted. No, everything that comes out of God's mouth, his word, is 100% trustworthy. It's 100% true. So if God is speaking to you, you can know that you can trust it because he's the holy one. He's the true one. It establishes his character. And then it says, and he holds the key of David. He is the one who has the key of David. What does that mean? Well, David was the greatest king in Israel's history. And so when you talk about the kingdom of, of David, that's, that's a name for the kingdom of God. 
And so what it's saying here is, look, Christ holds the keys to the kingdom. It means that he holds all authority. He holds all power. What Jesus says goes. There's no disputing it. There's no arguing it. He holds the, kings, the keys to the kingdom because he's the ruling and reigning king. So he establishes his character and he establishes his authority right at the, the get-go. And then it goes on to say, and what he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. Just reiterating here that what Christ says goes what Christ says goes. And so I have a, a picture here. There's some presidents that you may be familiar with. Both beautiful, beautiful men. Just, just dashing in every way. Um, so the presidents are the most powerful people in their country, right? Especially the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, it could be argued. What if, what if uh, President Trump were to say yes to something? What if Kim Jong-un were to say yes to something, and then they both said yes, but Jesus said no? What would happen? They're the most powerful men in the world. It would be an absolute no. There's no contest. If these guys say yes to something and Jesus says no, it's a no. And if they say no to something and Jesus says yes, then it's a yes. What doors Christ opens, no one can close. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. And so if the most powerful man in the nation here, the king, if his heart is directed and guided by the Lord, how much more so all of ours? He is guiding and directing our hearts, and he is working everything together for his glory and for our good. And so we can trust him completely. So it says, what he opens, no one can shut. And I love the way that this is said, because what this means is that if, if Jesus opens a door for you, nothing can shut it. Not your mistakes, not your fears, not your insecurities, not your sin. If Christ is opening a door for you, nothing can shut it. You just have to walk through it. And then it says, what Christ closes, no one can open. And it's the same thing. If, if Jesus closes a door for you, nothing can open it. Not your anxious fretting, not your tireless work, not, not the enemy, not, not demons, not other people. If Jesus closes a door in your life, nothing can open it. So what does that, that mean for us? Well, I, I got to experience this very thing back in college. Um, I went to college to become a police officer, or that was my, my end game. I graduate, graduated with a criminal justice degree because I had all intentions of going into law enforcement. I wanted to be a police officer and then like do SWAT and be in the FBI and then be like Jack Bauer, have my own TV show. Like that was my, that was my career path, Jack Bauer. Um, and so I graduated, and I was about to get married in a few months, and so I started the application process with Houston Police Department. And so I went through the entire process, and, and everyone I talked with, all my interviewers, all the other police officers I talked with, they were like, 
brother, you're a shoe-in. Like, you're going to be great. We're going to do fine. We'll, we'll get you in the, the academy here starting soon, and, and you're going to be able to take care of your wife because you're going to have a job. I was like, sweet, I'm in. So I went through the entire process, and then with a few weeks before the academy started, I got a letter in the mail that said, your application has been denied. Guys, it was, it was gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, because I had put all of my hopes and all of my dreams on this happening so that I could then provide for my family, my new family that was less than a month away from, from me getting married. And my plan was ripped out from under me. And so I was depressed, and I was angry, and, and just confused, like, God, I thought this was you. What are you doing? Why did this not work? And so I went on a different path. God took me on a different path. And I tried to open the law enforcement door two more times. And each time, God shut it down. God shut it down. But I am so thankful. So this, this was seven years ago. Looking back on that, Guys, I am so, so grateful that God shut that door for me. Even though I was banging my head against the wall, let me in. God shut the door, and I am so grateful because I get to be here with you guys, doing what I love, what fills my soul with joy, all because God shut that door in my life that I thought I wanted so badly. So the question you have to ask yourself here today is, what door has God opened in your life that you are being hesitant to walk through, that you are not walking through? Is it an opportunity of some kind? Is it um, he's, he's called you to sell or burn your smartphone to kill your porn addiction? Has he called you to pursue a friendship with a lost person at school? Has he called you to wake up early in the morning so that you can spend time with him? What is God calling you to do that you keep pushing him off on? I'll, I'll do it later, God. I'll do it later. No, no, I don't want to do it now. We all have things, so what, what's yours? And then conversely, what door has Jesus shut in your life that you keep trying to bang your head on to open it? What has he said no to that you keep trying to force to happen? Is it, a, is it a bad friendship that he's calling you to give up because they are they're tearing you down, they're bringing you away from Jesus? Is it a, a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend that you just keep trying to date? Like, I don't, I don't care what God says. I don't care what anybody says. They're going to be mine. What has he shut in your life? What has he said no to that you keep on trying to pursue? Guys, whatever it is, whether he's calling you to do something and you're not, he's calling you not to do something and you are, if you will obey him, you will find such joy, such happiness in the obedience because God, that, that infinitely set-apart one who has infinite wisdom and is all-knowing and all-powerful and he sees everything even to the depths of your soul, he knows what is best for you. Even if you don't like what he has to say, I did not like that he said, 
no more law enforcement. I wanted to be Walker, Texas Ranger, roundhouse kicking people in the face. But he said no to that. And so I have to trust that his will and purpose is best for me. And I can tell you, seven years later, oh, it is. His purposes are so good. So the letter goes on. He continues to say, I, I know all the things that you do. I've opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, and yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. So this is saying here that, that Jesus opens this door for this church, all the while knowing that they are weak in it. It's not like Jesus opened this door and he was like, oh, you guys aren't strong in that. I thought you were. I thought you could handle that. Oh, dang it. I'm sorry. Let's, let's close that again. Try it. Let's, let me get a different church. No, Jesus knew full well when he called this church to do whatever it is they were supposed to do, he knew that they were weak. He knew that they were weak, but he still gave it to them because he wanted them to depend on him and not their own strength. Guys, it's so easy for us to depend on our own strength, but when we do, we rob ourselves of the strength of the infinitely powerful God of the universe, the Lord of heaven's armies. He holds all authority, all power, all might, all wisdom. And when we don't rely on him for his strength, we rob ourselves of that kind of power, that kind of effectiveness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 11 says, God told me, my grace is all you need because my power works best in weakness. That was God talking to Paul. God said, my power works best in your weakness. Because whenever you're weak, I can then move in you and strengthen you, and you'll get a thousand times more done with my strength than you will with just yours on your, on your own. So Jesus continues and says, you have little strength, yet you've obeyed my word and did not deny me. But guys, even, even in our weakest moments, even in the, the darkest of places where, where temptation seems to have its strongest grip on you, even in those weakest places, you can still obey God's word. But you can't do it alone. You can't just muster up the strength like, oh, I'm just going to say no to this thing because I, I'm really strong and I've been, I've been lifting a lot of weights and I, I'm just going to say no. It's going to be fine. I'm going to do it myself. That never works. Trust me. Been there. Done that. Doesn't work. But if instead in that moment when that temptation comes, you will humble yourself and say, God, I, this, this feels overwhelming right now, but you are greater still. Lord, I can't save myself from this, but, but Lord, you can. So would you come fill me with passionate love for you? And would you fill me with a hatred for my sin? so that I could be close to you, I could be near to you, I can have my fullest happiness in you. And if you will pray that in those moments, that's really your heart, then he will answer that. He will strengthen you. Resist the evil one, and he will flee from you. But you have to resist him. Jesus continues, he says, Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they're Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. 
and they will acknowledge that you are the ones that I love. This goes back to the, the fact that we kind of talked a little bit about last week, how not everyone who claims to be a Christian is really born again saved. Only those who are truly believers. Because whenever you truly believe that Christ is who he says he is, that he is the eternal one who existed before time, before this earth, before the universe, that he created this, that he then became a little baby, who grew up to be a man, he lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died on a cross to pay the penalty of our sin, and then he rose again and is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, praying for us right now, filling us with power. If you believe that in your heart, then your life is going to be different. Your desires are going to be different. You're going to make different decisions. If you really believe that that God is who he says he is, you're going to make different decisions. And so not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. I think like 70% of Americans would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I don't know if I really believe that. I think 70% of people in America would say uh, that they claim the religion of Christianity. They, they do the church thing occasionally or often. But how many people would truly say that Christ is my greatest treasure, that I, I love him and I need him, that I want to please him? I don't know, but we have to ask ourselves, are we God's people? Because that's what, what Jesus is calling out here. These guys who claim to be Jews are saying, yeah, we're God's people. And Jesus is saying, no, no, they're not. And so we have to ask ourselves, are, are we God's people? Do we truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died for our sins and that he is alive, that he's more real than the skin on our bones? Do we believe that? If you don't, if you, if you don't have salvation this morning, just whisper a prayer to him right now. Say, God, I need a savior. Jesus, I can't save myself from my sin, but you can. Do you feel me? I want to know you. I want to please you. And if that's your heart, if your heart is to, to cry out to him as your savior and to bow your knee to him as your Lord, then you have eternal salvation. So he goes on in the letter and he says, Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the world to test those who belong to this world. So what does this tell us here? Well, I think it tells us that there are rewards for obedience. So these guys obeyed God in the midst of some, some persecu persecution. And God is saying, because of that, I'm going to keep you from this, this trial, this, this testing that's coming your way. And so we have to recognize that there are rewards when we obey God. I think that a lot of times we can think that, that God's commands are just kind of arbitrary. Like, man, God, that's, that's a dumb thing to say. Why would you say that? Or like, like we, we want to sleep with our boyfriend or girlfriend, and, and God's like, nope, you should not do that. And we're like, God, you're such a such a prude. Why can't you just let me have some fun? Well, God says no to that because God knows 
that sex is created as a beautiful, joyous gift to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife in a covenant relationship with trust and commitment. And he knows that outside of that, the only things that result from that is pain, suffering, misery, baggage. There's temporary pleasure and a lifetime of baggage. So every command is like that. God gives us his commands because they are for our good. They are for our good and they are for his glory. So we have to just, in faith, trust him. Hey, God, I I don't know why you said to do this, but you said to do it. And so I'm just going to walk it out. I trust you. He says, I'm coming soon. So hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. So is this talking about losing salvation? Is that, is that what the, the crown means? No. No, it's not. Spoiler alert. It is not talking about losing salvation. Jesus said in other places that, that my sheep know my voice and no one can snatch them out of my hand. If you are truly saved, you are forever in Christ and nothing can change that. So what is he saying? Well, in the New Testament, the crown was often a symbol of of reward and of victory. So they would award this this crown to the the runners at the end of a race or another competition, and it would be their reward. It would be a a symbol of their victory. And so it's the same thing here for us. God is saying that that be careful, hold on to the truth that I have given you, the commands that I've given you, because if you don't, you're going to lose some of the rewards. You're going to, re- you're going to lose some of the victory that I have in store for you if you don't hold tightly to my commands. So if that's the case, then how do we keep it? How do we not let somebody take away our crown? Well, so just imagine you're going to like the sketchiest part of town. Think about it wherever that is. Maybe it's downtown Houston. Maybe it's, I don't know, your backyard, wherever it is. Think of the sketchiest part of town. So you're walking, and, and ladies, you have your purse, and guys, you have your wallet, or maybe some of you guys have a man purse. I don't know. That's cool nowadays. You're walking in this sketchy part of town, and you see these crazy-looking dudes. Like, they look like they are hopped up on all sorts of drugs, and they have a knife in their hand, whatever. They, they are just wild and crazy-looking guys, and they're coming at you. They're just walking towards you. Well, what's your reaction? Is your reaction to just, okay, if I have my purse here, I'm just going to put it on the ground. And just, you guys want it? You guys want it? Or my wallet? And just, hey, guys, just, I'm just going to do this. You can, you can have it. You can have it. No, you're going you're gonna to be walking down the street, and you're going to notice that you have a potential enemy, and you're going to clamp down on your purse, or man purse, or you're going to clamp down on your wallet, and you're going to keep walking. Maybe you're going to cross to the other side of the street to avoid them. You're going to, number one, be aware that you have the enemy there, and number two, you're going to hold fast to whatever the valuable thing that you have is. And so it's the same thing with God's commands. So God has given each and every one of you commands. He's given each and every one of you truth from his word. 
And if we're not careful, people will take it away. Meaning the, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He will try and rob you of your rewards, of, of obedience. The world, the world's coming at against all of us every single day. Try to rob you of your rewards. Your flesh is worn against your spirit every day. It's going to try to rob you of your crown. And so what do you have to do? You have to be aware. So first you start with an awareness like, okay, this is all out here. And if I don't hold on to this, my crown, the commands of God, I'm going to lose rewards. And then you clamp down tight on them. You hold them tightly. You don't just let them go. It's like most of us just kind of walk through life with with a, a wad, like uh, say a $10,000 wad of cash, we just walk through life and the wind just blows it away and there's like $100 bills going away and you're like, oh no, my money. I'm just, oh, whatever. That's the truth of God's word. It is, it is priceless. It is so valuable for living a, a life on purpose where we find rewards in Christ, we, we have the, this $10,000 wad of cash, but so often we just like, eh, I learned something in church today, but I don't really care. Or I read something in my quiet today, but eh. So we have to be aware of our enemy, but then we got to clamp down on the commands of God. Meaning we have to, when we read in our quiet time in the morning, you have to read God's word and ask him, how do you want me to change my life based on your truth. And then throughout the day, you, you pray through that verse. God, would you, you help me? So if you read, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then throughout the day, you're praying, God, I'm angry right now. Would you help me to love you with all my heart? God, I'm, I feel so tired right now, but I know I need to persevere. Would you help me to love you with all of my strength? You're praying it throughout the day, and you're memorizing it to hide it deep inside of your heart so that then no one can come snatch it away from you. So what's the command of God that he has given you that maybe you need to return to? What has he commanded you to do that, that you've just kind of, like that water cast, just let float away in the wind? What do you need to return to, to, to cling to? We all have it in our life. So Jesus continues. He's about to end the letter. He says, All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. So what does it mean to be a temple in the, a pillar in the temple of God? It's, it's kind of weird language there. Well, the temple of God in, in biblical times, especially the Old Testament, was, was the symbol of where God's presence dwelt where his thick, tangible, where, where God himself, his tangible presence dwelt. And so what this is saying here is, okay, we'll be pillars in the presence of God if we persevere, if we continue to obey him. So what does it mean to be a pillar in the presence of God? Well, I have a picture of a pillar here. So these are just some pillars in some cathedral or church somewhere. What do we notice about them? Number one, they are rock solid. They are not going anywhere. They are permanent fixtures inside of this church. And so in the same way, 
for those of us who, who know Christ, who continue to, to live for him, we will be permanent fixtures in the presence of God forever. Meaning in heaven, we will get to talk to him face to face, like I'm talking to you guys right now. So why does this matter for us? What, what good does God's presence do for us besides just like a, a warm, fuzzy feeling inside? Well, the Bible says that in God's presence is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. So in God's presence, you're, if you have a, a happiness meter that goes from your foot to your head, in God's presence, it is bursting out the top of you. Your happiness is bursting out the top. Your pleasure is bursting out the top because God is what we're all searching for. He is what we need. And so in his presence is fullness of joy. So we're all going to uh, eat some turkey this week, right? I hope. Maybe some pumpkin pie. Yeah? Pecan pie? Anyone? Pecan pie? Yeah. That's what I'm talking My girl. Pecan pie. So we're going to be eating a lot of good food. We're going to enjoy a lot of happiness through food this week, right? We're going to enjoy a lot of pleasure through food this week. Now, God is saying that, that so often we settle for the, the breadcrumbs of happiness in our life. So God, God gives us this opportunity for fullness of joy in his presence. But so often, uh, just like, like at Thanksgiving dinner, it's like this feast is before you, and you just you look at what's left over on someone's plate, and you're like, yeah, that, the, the turkey tendon, I want, I want that tendon. And you just gnaw on it, and it gives you a splinter in your mouth. Or like you, you see the, the pie and the leftover pie, and there's just like a little, little bit of crumb. There's a whole big pie over here, but you just, I'm just going to take that. Oh, that was delicious. Yeah, that's good. That's so often what we settle for. But God's saying here, no, I don't want you to just settle for the breadcrumbs of happiness and pleasure. I want you to, to fill up a, a jacuzzi with pumpkin pie and pecan pie and turkey and bathe in it. That, that's the kind of joy, the kind of pleasure that God has awaiting us if we will just pursue him in his presence. In his presence is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. And so in heaven, we get to enjoy that. We get to enjoy that. Listen to what Randy Alcorn said. He said, the best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, is the closest they will come to heaven. So for, for believers, for those who are in Christ, you think about all of the, um, all of the enjoyment of this world, all of the, the love, all of the, the good feelings, all of the, um, the, the pleasures that you can enjoy in this life. They're all just a taste of what you will enjoy in heaven with Christ. Because we'll have fullness of joy with him. And then you think about all of the, the pain, all the suffering, all the heartache, all the anxiety. That is all a taste of what hell is going to be like for those who do not know Christ. 
And so we want to be people that are living for the greater pleasure, the greater happiness, which is the presence of God. So Jesus ends this letter by saying, And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. So what does this mean? Does this mean like Jesus tattoos? Maybe. I don't know. I think what it for sure means is Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to show the entire world that you are mine. You belong to me, and no one's going to be able to dispute it because my name is going to be written on you. God's name is going to be written on you, and no one's going to be able to dispute that. And then we'll be citizens in the city of God, meaning not only do we belong to him, but we have a community. We have a family. We belong to the kingdom of God. That's what Christ offers us through the gift of his salvation, belonging, community, fullness of joy. Guys, do you realize that from eternity past, Christ looked into the future and he saw you sitting here this morning and he wanted to communicate to you that he loves you more than anything you can ever imagine. He said, I, I see you sitting there and I want that one to be in my family. I want them to belong to me. That's the kind of love that he has for you. He's been thinking about you for all of eternity. That's the kind of God that we serve. So as we close, as we move to respond, I want you to grab your, your pen and your paper. We're going to do some work before the Lord. Because we don't want to just hear good truth. We want to ask God, okay, how do you want me to change? How do you want me to, to walk out my life based on what you've commanded me today? So guys, the first question, and it might help if you bow your head and close your eyes just to remove distractions. Just get quiet before the Lord. Just ask him a simple question. God, what door have you opened in my life that I'm being disobedient and not walking through? What have you called me to do that I am not doing? says, write it down. And then ask him the question, God, what doors have you shut in my life that I'm banging my head against? What have you called me not to do that I keep doing?
and then thinking about, back to the crown illustration, what truth has God given to you? What commands has he given to you that you are not keeping, that you are not holding tightly to, that you have allowed to just float away? What has he commanded you? What do you need to return to? And then I want you to just write out a real simple prayer based on whatever he told you, whatever he called you to. Just write out your heart to him, crying out to God for him to help you, for him to strengthen you. It could be something as simple as, God, I can't change myself, but you can. Holy Spirit, do a powerful work inside of me. Change me, oh God. Guys, whatever God has called you to is for your good. And whatever God has called you to is for his glory. Meaning it will last forever. Because people will look at you as you obey God. And they will give praise to your Father in heaven. They will give praise to Christ because of your obedience. The way we live this life matters. Whether we choose to obey Christ or disobey him matters. For this life and for the life to come. And we are not saved by good works. We're not saved by doing enough good things to earn his grace. No, salvation is a free gift of grace that is offered through faith in Christ alone. But when we are saved, it means that we have changed desires, changed motives. We want to please him. We're not perfect, but we desire to honor him. As we continue to respond, we have our, our tithes and our offering, and we have our communion. Communion is just praising Jesus. It's just thanking Jesus for the gift of his death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. So when we take the juice, it's just, Jesus, thank you for your blood that was shed for me. When you eat the cracker, Jesus, thank you for your body that you were allowed to be broken in my place. And then we're going to continue in worship. Let's not hold back here this morning. Let's not just go through the motions. Let's respond to the infinite king of the universe that from eternity past looked at you and set his affection on you. He said, I choose to love you. 
You're mine. You belong to me. You belong to my kingdom. You belong to my family. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we're singing to here this morning. Holy Spirit, we confess that we can't change ourselves. There is no way that we can muster up enough strength to change, but we have you, the infinite God of all eternity. So Lord, would you change us? Would you draw us near to yourself? Lord, would you speak to our hearts how much you love us? Lord, would we understand greater that you have the, the love of a, a fiery, hot, passionate love for each and every one of us? God, speak to our hearts here. Draw us near to yourself. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.